You know, when I was a little girl, they used to talk about angels flying through the sky and about elves and dwarfs and Uncle Sam and all of those characters that weren't real. Once again, we join you, everybody. This Week in Mormons is here. I missed you. I know you missed me. But the great thing about it is you don't want a world of too much Jeff. That's why I brought Jared Gillins with me this week to help, you know, balance the load, as it were. How are you, sir? I'm well. How are you? I'm not too shabby. Actually, what do we have to complain about? The Nats won the World Series, buddy. I know. That's pretty exciting. In case our listeners don't know, we both live in the greater Washington, D.C. area. So the Nationals is the local team. So whether you are a Washington, (laughs) D.C.-ite, Washington, D.C. A Washingtonian, I believe. Washingtonian. Ah, but I'm a Washingtonian from Washington State, so I don't know. I know. That's hard for you, but I don't have that problem. So Anyway, whether that or whether you're from Montreal and you're still holding on to your old team... You have something to celebrate. Or whether you're from Baltimore and you just are tired of the Orioles losing 100-plus games a season. <laughs> oh, I I'm not throwing were... shade. I think Camden anyway. Yard is a lovely park and the Orioles are a great and storied franchise. When I was a kid, uh, Cal Ripken Jr. was my very favorite player. I... Yeah, I mean, he's Cal. Yeah. So that, that, that has been exciting. I was very much suffering from lack of sleep during the World Series, though. I was a zombie for yeah, so many hard. days. Yeah. So many days. Um, but it was good, man. I uh, The big kick I got out of it, I let my four-year-old son stay up and watch. He didn't watch the whole thing, obviously. But he, you know, kids go to bed like eight-ish most of the time. And uh, I let him stay up for a while. And he's just sitting there playing catch with me, having a great time, asking all about the game. When he'd get tired, he would decide that he needed to do exercise for more energy. And so he'd like jump around and, and swoosh his legs around and then say, now I will do yoga. And he'd strike some kind of downward dog pose. And then he'd get up and say, like, okay, I'm ready again. And then I love kids because they're just like going like crazy. And then the second he sits on the couch around 930, like he just yawns big and just says, dad, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. <laughs> like, okay. So that was fun though. That made the World Series even more exciting for me. What a yeah. good time. All around. Um, and and yeah. to keep this... Uh, Mormon adjacent, I would just like to point out that a certain LDS ball player was not included on the Nationals. Oh, are you team. are you are you throwing shade at Harper? Do you think this all happened once we dumped Harper from the team? Are you one of those? Well, so here's the thing. So I'm from Seattle and uh the Mariners are my team. And back in 1995, we had one of the best se- seasons ever. And you know, it's 24 years later and we're still talking about it because wasn't two thousand wasn't 2000 like the best 2000 season? was also a very good year. Yeah. But 90, okay. 95 is the year when we eliminated the uh Yankees from the playoffs and everybody was we were in the playoffs first of all and we also beat yeah. the Yankees. Anyway, uh but that was the year after we had gotten rid of all of like the big star players. Um They'd all either retired or been traded away, and so there, so there's this kind of myth. I don't know if it's true or not, but that in baseball, like if you get rid of the prima donnas, you're going to have a good season. Yeah, so we got yeah. we got rid of Bryce Harper, and we had a great season, the best and season you Jason could possibly have. Worth. Jason Worth has been gone too. Right. So there you go. I think there's something to be said for that when there's a lot of ego and a lot of payroll. 
I see where you're going with it. Considering both teams had both teams had some stars. I mean, you know, you've got Scherzer and Strasburg and Juan Soto's a name, and on the Astros, you've got Altuve and and a lot of the famous pitchers and stuff. But I get what you mean. It seems like more or less it's just a scrappy scrappy teams that are just getting it done, grinding yeah. it out. Yeah. It makes it more fun to watch too. I should know about this because I'm an Angels fan by at the most. You know, if it's ever like a Nats Angels World Series, sorry Nats, I'm going for my my Halos in that one. But um, they have Mike Trout, but beyond that, they have an aging Albert Pujols, and I don't know what else. So it has it has it has been a stone around the team's neck, shall we say? Because we're still right. paying for that Pujols contract for more years. Well, and heck, you're paying a lot for that Trout contract. What, what was it? It was didn't he set some kind of record? Yeah, but Trout is worth it. Albert Pujols, on the other hand, is going to be like 42 years old, and we're going to be paying him 40 million dollars to do nothing. So, true. Great job, Artie Moreno. You understand the game. And now, in case all of you thought that this is a sports podcast, <laughs> welcome to Aaron Sorkin's Sport Night. The podcast. Just so you know, I've exhausted my knowledge of sports at baseball. Um, if we veer into football, I will. I will have nothing to say. Nor, nor will I. To much to my father's chagrin. I mean. Or, He's he's not alive around to be ashamed of my lack of football knowledge, but I'm I'm sure wherever he is, he's still ashamed of me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what can you do? But this is not a sports show, everybody. It is a religious show about all sorts of things along those lines. Very quickly before we get into Latter Day Saint news, I just want to check in with Jared and just see how your life is, man. Anything new? How, how's the Picard cast? Just bring it to us up to speed. We haven't talked to you since uh, conference recap, and that was a bit different. We didn't get to chat as much. So let's go. True. On? Oh, uh, you know, just life is life. Uh, what What is going on? We have recorded, I think since the last episode that I recorded with you, we did record one more episode of the Picard cast. It was sort of more just the the, the Gillens brothers. We invited our brother Scott back on. We we, we geeked out about the, the latest trailer and also that they announced the release date, the actual release date for the Dude, show. Riker is there. In the yes. Movie. Yes. We were yes. very excited. We yes. lots of familiar faces, lots of good things. Um, but yeah, so Picardcast, we should have some more episodes coming out soon ish. We need, we've got a few people lined up to have on the show. We just need to nice get some recording done. You and know, then, weirdly, I was thinking about Star Trek five for some reason last week. Oh, why? I know. I don't know why. Because <laughs> probably because I was thinking like Star Trek Five, man. That is the worst show. That is the worst movie of all the Star Trek movies. Actually, I don't know. Nemesis is pretty bad. W- what would you rank out of all the Star Trek films as the worst one? Star Trek expert Jared. Uh, ooh, yeah. I, I, I probably would argue that Five is worse than Nemesis, but I also I think Insurrection is worse than Nemesis. So. Oh yeah, Insurrection. It's Insurrection is the one that's based practically like TV level of film quality, right? Doesn't that one just look like an extended episode of the show? Yeah, and I know some. Isn't people that the who one with like the invisible boat was, or something like that? We'll say that again. Isn't that the one where like Data finds some invisible ship or something like that? Isn't that that one? No, no. He was in an invi- he was in like a duck blind type thing where he was dating a dating some alien. Yeah. And she can like slow down time or something like something. It's, I don't know. I just, it's, I, it's terrible. <laughs> so insurrection's worse than nemesis is insurrection worse than star Trek five though. No, nah, that's hard to say. They're both pretty bad. The sad thing is that is the Shats sole directorial effort. I know. And if you listen, I mean, of course, I mean, William Shatner, 
known not only for his hamish acting which i love but also known for his enormous ego he insists that he was kind of hamstrung by the studio and that if he had had free reign that it would have been a much better movie and i choose to just believe him i mean there is some truth (laughs) to that because they could they didn't have the they couldn't get ILM to do any of the effects work, which they'd done in the past because they were doing everything for Indiana Jones. Right. But effects um, work d- d- does not save a plot as we learned from the star Wars prequels. So hey, oh, there we go. Come on, man. Trade wars. <laughs> I don't the, mind. The star Wars prequels were prescient. If anything, here we are with the trade federation. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, good times all around. But life's good. I, I I feel seriously. I just I turned forty uh, last week. Congratulations! How does it feel? I feel good. You know, I, I kind of did a little self evaluation the day after my birthday. I went out for a run. I felt good. I kind of you know you know looked to where I was at professionally and mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all you know all the 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 areas to, to that you should be evaluating yourself in your life. And I thought, you know, I'm in a good place. I feel good. Forty's good. Good things ahead. I'm feeling positive right now. Good. One of these days, my knees will go out and I'll say, ah, never mind. I'm an old man. I, I hate life. You but, darn kids. Yeah, all that stuff. Darn those kids. Good, man. Did you do anything for uh, Halloween? Uh, no, we kind of just stayed in laid low. We went to our ward Halloween party. Well, hey, this is a good segue. Let's talk about this. I'm good at uh, that, Jared. I was setting, I was, that was called a uh, an assist. Right I didn't there. even realize it. That was clever. Yeah. Well. I'm kind of sorry I drew attention to it because it could have been such a smooth transition. You ruined my entire segue, but continue. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about Halloween. So <laughs> that was what, what Halloween was, what, last Thursday? Uh, prior to that, there was an op-ed that uh, published in the Salt Lake Tribune, <laughs> known for its wonderfully fair and balanced op-eds about the church. <laughs> and um, <laughs> The Fox News of LDS coverage. <laughs> I, I suppose. Um, anyway, I, I can't see the date that this actually ran, but it was before Halloween. And and the headline is, letter, trunk or treat has ruined Halloween. And uh, it's a very short op-ed, but basically this guy is saying, hey, I live in the greater, you know, somewhere in Utah, and we're always ready to receive trick-or-treaters. But every year there are fewer and fewer of them. It's because church culture and trunk-or-treats has destroyed neighborliness and has made it so that we we only go around to trunks in a church parking lot instead of greeting our neighbors. Oh, and, okay. And, and I guess I can see his point if that is really the case where you live. I don't know about you, Jeff, but over here, when, when we did a ward Halloween party, uh, it was a trunk or treat and a chili cook-off, as it so often is. But let me tell you, we had that on... Uh, October 19th <laughs> or, or was it the 26th? I think it was the 26th. Yeah. Still, it was, it was the week before Halloween. So every kid in my ward got candy at the ward trunk or treat and they got it again when they went around their neighborhood. And so I, I don't know if trunk or treats, like the, to me, I, I, I believe that this uh, op-ed is setting up what, it, what we would call a false dichotomy that either you go trunk or treating or you go trick or treating Mm. Um, and I don't think that's accurate. I, what do you what What do you find? What how did it, how does it work in your ward? I I concur in general. So we we had ours pretty early. We had the trunk or treat a tri ward trunk or treat on the nineteenth, uh, and that was a rousing success. I can't speak to what all the other families do in our area necessarily. We still took the kids out in our neighborhood 
uh, on Halloween. Uh, this year was a bit different though. I'd say in general, uh, my wife was out of town. So I was just kind of scraggling around trying to take the boys out and then just, in some, you know, like the immediate street to take them to do some stuff. Uh, it seemed like I felt less of a need to go out on Halloween itself to take mm-hmm. them trick or treating. Um, that might've been more circumstantial, but I, so I do see, I see where the op-ed could be going in that. I don't think it's outlandish to see Latter-day Saints being insular and enjoying a fun evening in the parking lot with our own, as opposed to being out with in the community, which is funny because in Utah, your community is very much your ward in most, most areas anyway. Right. Um, and maybe, maybe that's also part of the issue in Utah that, Unlike where we live, where we have plenty of non-Latter-day Saint neighbors and a whole different community, when you're in Utah, yeah, where you're going to walk around pretty much are the people you see at the trunk or treat anyway. So I don't know. So I get it. Like, why would you go again? Other than, you know, the candy. So I don't know. I I, I, I empathize a little bit with the, uh, the writer. I kind of get it. I don't think it's universal, but I could see how this could happen and happen easily. Yeah. Well. Whatever. I, 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 I call Grumpy Gus on this one. Well, I mean, he might still be a Grumpy Gus. That's, that's 100% true. That's absolutely fair. <laughs> yeah. That's anyway, absolutely but it is, an, it is an interesting thing to consider. And like you said, if you do live in an area where this does happen, I, I do agree with him. Like, I, I don't think we should sacrifice community for, you know, I, I mean, again, like you said, in some places your ward is your community, but I think in many places your community is your community and your ward could be part of that. But it's worth going around every, at least once a year with your kids to go say hi to the neighbors as they as your kids threaten them with tricks if they don't receive something. Yeah. Good I mean, where I, live, where I live, it's a lot of fun. Um, everyone, a lot of people just sit out on, on their porches with their candy. It's kind of the tradition. Um, did not hurt that it was like freakishly 79 degrees and humid for some reason on Halloween. I don't know what, how that happened, but, uh, yeah. And then we ended up getting that tornado warning. That and I do think that suppressed turnout in general in my neighborhood compared to the trunk or treat, everyone was worried about the thunderstorms and tornadoes coming through. So I noticed a lot fewer houses were even passing out candy on Halloween night. We skipped over many, many homes in succession without you know, getting anything. So it all depends. All right. I, as a goofy numbers metrics person, after all, I work in analytics for a living. I love this little news that came out from a letter from the presiding bishopric. And if you're familiar with the presiding bishopric, it is responsible for the upkeep of our buildings and almost anything temporally uh, related, you know, in the church buildings, the welfare programs, even a lot of things are overseen by the presiding bishopric. This letter, however, talks about reporting. And many of you listening have likely served in callings that have involved producing or taking a report of some kind, and typically, I would assume, on a quarterly basis. And I had my first introduction to this when I was an Elders Quorum president. I don't know why. When I was a clerk at BYU, I have no memory of doing the reporting month. I don't know. I don't know. But um, when I was in this role, I had never heard of the fabled reporting month at the time, which literally just means March, June, September, December, okay? And what that literally means is you're not reporting on your numbers, you know, your attendance, uh, your home teaching, whatever it might be. You're not either reporting a cumulative amount or an average of those months. You're just reporting on what happens in the reporting month. It's called a quarterly report, but it's 
It's just a report of like that month of the quarter. That's all it is. I've never agreed with the logic behind it. I don't know where it started or where it came from. I would love to know a history of that because it seems so business backwards in my mind. Uh, I recognize that there's a level of effort involved in getting those kinds of numbers. If it was monthly, for example, especially in the olden days, that, that requires a lot more. So Maybe that's where it came from. I don't know. Well, so I also th- wonder if, I mean, that's par- partially just a logistics issue, not just, um, you know, being in the olden days and it being a little harder to tabulate without a computer, but also I'm assuming that these things had to be mailed in. And so you had to have somebody in Salt Lake receiving that mail and processing that mail and have a whole like a department probably dedicated to crunching those numbers. Okay. And- well, let's, let's move up though from like olden days and talk about quote unquote olden days, like the nineties. I mean, there was no reason we still had to do this in the nineties or even the two thousand. Hey man, I remember dial up. Dial up was there. And, and back then the software was MLS, you know, there was the one clerk computer and everyone had to find their, I mean, we transitioned based program. I mean, we transitioned to LCR while I was an elders quorum president. I remember the earlier days when I still just to update home teaching assignments, you know, I had to like go over to the church some night, when I knew the cl- nobody would be there and log into the computer and do all that stuff. And LCR has been a huge blessing for everybody. Right. Uh, just being able to do all of that wherever you have an internet connection is, is enormous. And thankfully, because of that, even if it's taken us some time to get there, the church is going to start taking sacrament meeting attendance weekly, and it will be recorded weekly. There will still be a monthly report of sorts, but or sorry, a quarterly report, but it will be an average of the sacrament meeting attendance across that entire period of time, which I think is an okay way to do it. That's fine. Um, I'm just very happy about this. I feel like it's one step away from the court, from the reporting month. You know, we're still doing it a little bit and that's fine, but I'm hoping other areas of reporting will adopt this model because hopefully if people like clerks and secretaries stay on top of this and do it, it shouldn't be a huge lift if all you're doing is if you have your piece of paper and you're taking your role and then you just go hop on LCR and just log your stuff and be done with it, I don't think that's too much to ask. And we could get good metrics out of this. I mean, before when it's been quarterly, you're just getting four months out of the year for attendance. I would love to see a full outlay of 52 weeks of the year as a bishop and like what my sacrament meeting attendance was Yeah, and, all of that and see how it fluctuated. Yeah. And I, and I think you mentioned this in your, you, you know, you, you wrote a little article about this on, on the twin blog and, you know, people go ahead and click through so that uh, Jeff can get a few more page views on this. But uh, yeah, the, 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 one of the things you pointed out is that like in December, depending on where you were, like if you're a Utah ward in December and everybody's coming home <laughs> to visit, December is a great reporting month. But if you're like, here in in the DC area, December is a terrible reporting month. I hate it so but much. It's the fourth quarter, so, so you have to report. <laughs> and then you'd and, have the stake presidency would be like, I'd be meeting with a counselor, you know, the stake presidency. Why are your numbers down? I'm like, it's December. Like, what yeah. do you want from What do you want yeah. from me? <laughs> well, and then conversely, you know, we live in the DC area where a lot of people come for tourism purposes. So in the summer, we'd have really you know, inflated numbers. And yeah, I remember. And it's June. not bad. You know, we were always love in June. June's a reporting month, right? Yeah, because we'd say, "Oh man, we're getting all these great numbers in June. Uh, we're gonna, you know, that's gonna improve our budget." <laughs> but and that's the weirdest thing: sacrament meeting dictates what your budget is for the war, right? Which is right. funny, but there it is. Um, I'm curious. At the, you know, at the very end of your article, you you asked the question: "What about second hour attendance? Does anybody actually take that?" And I. I have you not noticed that at all? Like, do, does that not happen in your ward? Uh, in my life, I have normally seen attendance taken. So when we still had the three-hour block, 
Mm-hmm. I feel like Sunday school attendance was not logged very well, but elders quorum, like we'd keep track. I mean, both when I was the you know president and not, like I'd wanted to make a point to tally that, but I feel like I haven't seen it done, especially since the shift over to two hour block. I, asked- I have- I've never seen a role going around or anybody who's clearly a secretary of an organization taking it. Sorry, cut you off. No, it's okay. I asked uh, our Elder Scorn president uh, about that, and he said that on a reporting month is when he'll pay attention to that. And it, and, he, and he says, yeah, we don't pass one around. He'll just tell every member of the presidency just to keep an eye out, and they'll just kind of in a – either in an email or in a presidency meeting cobbled together like, Oh yeah, these people were here and they'll just go and check the boxes and kind of take attendance for us. But it's very informal to me. Like, you know, it's not like it was just sort of like, Oh, we, yeah, I saw that person's face. They were here today. Check off the box, but they apparently it was good enough for them. So, you know, whatever. And I believe, isn't there some weird thing for, uh, for, second hour attendance that if you saw somebody like in sacrament meeting, you'd still count them as attending elders quorum, even if they're not, they're not there. I don't know, man. That sounds, that sounds like, like a local folk practice or something. I don't know. But well, the thing you do have to do though, is keep track of where people are. <clears throat> Cause for those who are in primary or other callings who aren't actually attending quorum, you're still supposed to count them. Right. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah if, they're, if they're there, I believe when I was there, it was, yeah, our secretary or whoever was doing it, we, yeah, we didn't pass around a role, but we just kind of, it's a good chance to get to know the people in your group anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you don't know who a face is, find out and, you know, take role and, and figure it out. So I don't love like numbers for numbers sake. I don't like to get lost in that kind of stuff, but I love seeing new metrics. I mean, if you can get cool data out of this that actually better reflects what's happening in our wards, I think that's cool. Why not? Yeah. Let's yeah. get it, people. Yeah. I mean, I'm not anti-metrics. I think, you know, there's, there's always the the danger of getting too caught up in the numbers, but I think numbers do serve a purpose. Like, I don't see us ever completely abandoning the active reporting <laughs> in the church. So, but, no, no, I don't but if so we can either. improve the way we report and record, I'm all for it. And this sounds like an improvement to me. Amen. I think we should, um, I think we should do a little series here. We've got a few articles that are all temple related. All right. We should, we should knock them out. One, two, three, and I'll Let's go first. It. Okay. So, um, they, we, we, uh, I can't remember which conference has been a little while now that they announced a Moses Lake temple in Washington state where I am from. I'm not from Moses Lake. I'm from Washington state. Uh, but they've, uh, recently announced the site for the Moses Lake temple. And I don't think we should go into the details of exactly where in Moses Lake that is, because it's I on think maybe two of our listeners would actually know Moses Lake geography. It's right off I-90. I did look it up though. It looks like it's going to be on what's now farmland. Right next to the freeway, so it'll have visibility. But, you know, Moses Lake, lovely area, lovely lake, uh, lovely <laughs> place for saints. No, it really is. It's a Lovely, place- lovely Moses. It's got a- <laughs> No, Moses Lake is an area that I, I didn't really spend much, if any, time there uh, as a youth in uh, growing up in Washington. But people would go out there for the lake, you know, to go and, you know, just have a, a warm uh, weekend. Uh, you know, it, it was generally... Uh, the Cascades in Washington state form what we call a rain shadow. So the Western part of the state where I grew up was always generally pretty cloudy and rainy. But once you got past on the other side of the mountains, you got a lot more sunshine. And so people would often head out to Moses Lake or Lake Chelan, that area in in central Washington to have a a warm, sunny weekend and enjoy water skiing and what have you. So Ah, Lake Chelan. My MTC companion was from 
Manson, Washington. Huh, that's a terrible name for a city. Yes, it is. And it's <laughs> and, and I will always know this because when I first met him, you know, you're doing the, the greetings and such. And he's just like, where are you from? He said, Manson, Washington. You ever heard of Lake Chelan? And that delivery, that answer was, it was like a canned response that he had ready to go whenever anybody asked him where he was from. So it's it's been stuck in my head for so many years. Well, in Washington, and I would dare say Oregon and maybe even Idaho, that would be a good follow-up question because, of course, you wouldn't have heard of uh, Manson, but you would have heard of Lake Chelan because it's a it's a destination. So I guess. I don't know. Anyway, so. but we're happy for the people of Moses Lake. Uh, as you pointed out in your little TWIM article, um, it's, it's not a big town at all, but it is pretty – overly represented in the LDS community. Um, so it's really interesting. And, and it's not just, uh, you know, Moses Lake, but, you know, Wenatchee, Tri-Cities, that whole central Washington corridor has a lot of members of the church. So it's a great blessing that we're going to have a temple there soon-ish and that, that we now know where it's going to be. So hooray for Moses Lake. Yeah, I believe that'll be the fourth temple in the state. Yeah, we've got Seattle, yeah. Tri-Cities, and, and Spokane, Spokane already. Right? So, so Yeah. The question is if Washington, people have long thought that Washington might get another one somewhere on Puget Sound, like another temple in Tacoma, something like that. I, well, time will tell. I don't I'd know. be all for it. That's a controversial stance. We're not going to, that's not going to stand here. We can't do it. What, all right. What, advocating for temples is a, contra- I guess it is. No, I'm just, I know, I'm I know this I'm podcast. Sassing you. I'm sassing you. I'm sassing you. All right. So the, the, what I'm going to get into now is, is sheerly speculation. Okay. And I recognize that I am rumor mongering basically, but this is according to some individuals reportedly in the know on Facebook. And Jared, this is relevant to us because of where we live. Yes. Um, our beloved DC temple has been closed since I believe March of 2018. It's been mm-hmm. quite some time now. Uh, they said it would be closed for approximately two years. So naturally many of us are wondering when's it going to come back online? I've heard a lot of things going back and forth. Some people said it was going to be done early and they'd actually do it in like February or March. Uh, but now according to, To this report, the Baltimore Coordinating Council of Public Affairs had a meeting, and Brother Marcus Faust, the North America Northeast Communications Director, went on the record to say that the Washington, D.C. Temple Open House will be in the fall of 2020, so a whole year from now. Um, Reportedly, the Brethren don't want to run up against winter weather, which is smart, and then possibly inauguration ceremonies in January. Oh, yeah. Which would actually put, if they even, if they didn't care about the inauguration, that would actually put the temple almost close to three years of renovation, uh, if that were the case. So even now saying fall of 2020 seems kind of protracted to me based on, I think, what we assumed going into this, right? Um, But if that is true, we don't know a set date or anything. Fall could mean any time in October, maybe early November, which is a very nice time of year. I mean, the weather's great and, uh, you know, the humidity's died down by then. So I'm curious to see if this comes true. If it does, I'll be very excited. I think it's been fun to watch everyone kind of consecrate themselves and go up to Philadelphia a lot and sacrifice whole days and all that kind of stuff to do that. But it'll be very nice to have the landmark back. We've only, uh, you know, I'll I'll out ourselves, (laughs) but uh, we've only headed up to Philadelphia once. Uh, Me too, buddy. Me too. But but an interesting effect beyond that, though, and I think it's not just uh, my wife and I, but I've talked to other people who do this too, but suddenly temple attendance becomes a much more prominent feature of vacation and travel. So like we were out uh, visiting my sister in Indianapolis 
several months ago and we said, Hey, can we go to the temple while we're there? And we, you know, we normally wouldn't because it's just like, Hey, we're just visiting family, but we made time to go to the temple. And when we go visit family in Idaho falls or Utah, or, uh, we were visiting some friends in Denver several months ago and we went to the temple and, uh, you know, so it's interesting that, uh, our priority, we haven't necessarily made time to, to create new trips to go to Philadelphia, but the existing trips that we do have planned, we use them uh, to go to the temple in part. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of new. And it, it's it's been a cool way to see my life adapt when we don't have a temple close by. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we've said things like this ad nauseum, but it always seems that when there's a scarcity for the temple, we are much more inclined to go out of our way <laughs> to, fi- to find one or to attend if possible. I mean, I've, yeah, I've seen the same thing. You know, it's just once they're convenient, it's easy to take them for granted. So I was, I was curious, um, you know, you know, like you said, this is purely rumor. We, we don't, haven't seen anything official on this, but I was like, oh, so near the end of 2020, that's interesting. And then I thought, well, when is a Richmond going to be done? Cause you know, that's going to be a while. Yeah. I looked it up on the church's website. It says a ground a groundbreaking is expected to take place in the second or third quarter of 2020. So when DC is getting finished up is when they'll finally break ground on Richmond. So yeah. And then it takes about three years typically from groundbreaking to dedication for most temples. So unfortunately the inspiration was not there to announce the Richmond temple four years ago or something and, (laughs) and get it knocked out. I will be, when they open Richmond, um, It'll be, you know, because I live south of the Beltway. I'm on, I'm down the Interstate 95, going that direction. Because um, the DC Temple, 45 minutes away. I don't, that's what I don't think it'd be quite 45, but obviously we'll make it down there at some point. I'm basically curious, like which temple on a Saturday. No, I was giving you a hard be, time and saying you were 45 minutes away. Just, oh, you mean yeah. from you? It's not all. I know. It's not. That's not always inaccurate. It's true. <laughs> anyway. But the DC Temple, from where we are. Uh, in typical traffic can, you know, it can be approximately an hour to get up there uh, if it's mm-hmm. like normal conditions. Um, so I'm curious once Richmond is done, which one will actually be easier for us to access. We're, we're still going to be in DC's temple district. I know that, but mm. because we're not that, you know, we're not that far away, dear Jared. I'm not like past Quantico or anything, right? Uh, but uh, we'll be in an interesting spot. I think it's going to be great having the Richmond temple there. It's going to be killer for, I think the only room of complaint, if you can have it, <laughs> is... For the Saints of Hampton Roads area, you know, down there, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, and all that, um, it's a temple much closer for them, but the temple is going to be built on the northwestern suburban side of Richmond, mm. which is as far away from that metropolitan area related to Richmond as it could be. Like if it was in southeastern Richmond, it would bridge the gap a bit more for them, but they will have to cross all of Richmond's metro area to get to it. Still a great blessing, but you know, they're they're all going to have to drive for an extra thirty minutes. And I love the artist rendering. I love looking at that that yeah. picture. It's uh, it looks it looks very much like they drew on drew some inspiration from uh, Thomas Jefferson's um, forays into architecture. It's got like the colonnade portico type look, and I think they said as much too. Yeah, they were really trying to represent a lot of you know Virginia, right? Classic Virginia. I mean, when you've got up the road Charlottesville and you know University exactly. of Virginia is there and all the and and Jefferson designed Virginia State Capitol building too. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Yep. Yep. Why not? Yep. So lovely, wonderful. So I'm excited. Uh, I still, just one more quick thing on DC. Have you ever heard anything concrete about what they're doing in there? We know it's supposed to be just hardcore structural fixes and new HVAC and wiring and all that stuff. But have you heard of anything beyond that? Like, are they altering floor plans or anything along those lines that we know of? 
I haven't heard anything about that. And the only thing that I've kind of thought, I mean, and this is just me wishful thinking, is that I kind of hope that they update the decor a little bit. They did that actually a few years ago. The, I don't know if you remember this, but... but or they changed all the seats to, a few years ago. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember? Have you been up to the assembly hall up on the top floor? I have been up there a couple times, yeah. Okay. So do you remember when they changed it from that kind of, I hate to use this word, you know, talking about a temple, but there was kind of a garish yellow on the seat coverings in the, in the assembly hall. Vaguely, they toned yeah. it down into more of like an ivory kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. And I, so I kind of hope that same effect ripples a little bit through the temple because, I mean, it was built in the 70s and it reflects that era in some ways. And that's not necessarily entirely a bad thing, but I just kind of hope that uh, we get a little bit more mellowing of some of those colors and a little more. I get maybe- what you mean, or even all the uh, the sort of faux wa- walnut-ish wood paneling. You know, you know, you walk in the across, you walk across the bridge. I love that our temple has a bridge. I like that bridge. I know it's cool. You walk across the bridge, and then you you see this beautiful mural. But then the corridors that kind of break off from there, there's a lot of like wood paneling. And I would say the wood paneling feels like 70s wood paneling. It's not like Mm -hmm. you're seeing beautiful mahogany or anything like that. So maybe maybe finishes like that, they'll alter. I don't know. I see what you mean. I mean, they could could update a few things here or there. Yeah. My assumption, though, is like you said, that the majority of that is the actual, you know, they're they're reinforcing and making sure structurally it's good. Um, I know that after the the earthquake in 2012, that they had to do some work on the spires. So I wonder if that's part of what they're checking just to make sure there's no real foundational issues uh, as an aftermath of that earthquake. I just wonder if they're going to do anything with the uh, cafeteria. I mean, they haven't used the cafeteria as a you know, a full scale cafeteria for years, but most oh, no. of, I mean, most it's of just the been serving like a couple of vending just, machines for a while now. Yeah. But the serving areas are still there and this is obviously a good opportunity to, uh, tear that all out and, and economize the space. I just don't know what they would do there. I mean, they're, I was going to say, what would you do with it? I don't know. I mean, you have a baptistry. It's fine. <laughs> you could expand the baptistry. I wonder if you could do a second baptistry. Is that, is that allowed in a temple? I don't know if a temple's allowed to have two baptismal fonts. I'm going to say no, but I have no reason to back that up other than just my I haven't seen anything in the revelations about that. But have you seen anything about not that or against it? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's, anyway. that's a fir- they could put more ceiling rooms in, like the LA Temple. Um, Can you put ceiling rooms in the basement? Where I don't know. I don't think there are officially rules like that. If you've been to the Los Angeles Temple, it has a smattering of ceiling rooms just all over the building. So there, there's a main floor that has a lot of them. Have you ever been to the LA Temple? Yes. My, okay. Uh, not only were my parents sealed there, but my uh, younger brother, the shark, was sealed there. Okay. And, uh, so, so, so there's like the main floor has a lot of ceiling rooms, but there are a couple of ceiling rooms off of the celestial room. I don't know if those ones ever get used. Um, but yeah. then there's some, there's random ones. There there is actually a ceiling room off of the baptistry. Like, oh the really? The door to it is like next to the font. Yeah. So there's random ceiling rooms kind of tucked into various corners throughout the temple, just in different spots. So I don't think there's anything doctrinally that suggests a ceiling room cannot be subterranean. Huh. But so I do I do believe that my parents were sealed in one of those rooms that is off of the celestial room. Yeah. So uh, but did they then, have to have a yeah, white I remember wedding? walking past them and they were kind of just like cordoned off, you know, with one of those velvet. They are. Yeah. They've got the little rope thing right there. Yep. And in the, in the stanchion, whatever. And uh, so, yeah, it kind of looks like it almost looks like it's a display room more than anything. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. So there aren't that many temples with ceiling rooms off of the celestial room, at least not ones that are that contemporary. I mean, most of the, the ones that have it, you see now Salt Lake, Manti, uh, maybe St. George. I don't know. St. George is fared, but some of the older pioneer ones, that was very common. Um, mm-hmm. 
But LA was built in the 50s and they still had it. And I imagine some of the other temples creeping up on that era might have some. I've never done a session in Idaho Falls, for example. I don't know if they have any ceiling rooms off of the celestial room there. I don't think so. Wait, let me think. So I was sealed in Idaho Falls. Um, well, there we go. And I'm we were sealed in the largest ceiling room. And it was not, it was definitely not adjacent to the celestial room. I, I don't think that that's the case for Idaho Falls. I don't, I can't think of any ceiling rooms that are, are attached to the, the celestial room like that. All right. Well, twin listeners, you know the deal. Comment on this Facebook post for this episode or send us an email at contact at thisweekinmormons.com and uh, let us know because I'm just throwing it out there. I assume it's just Manti, Salt Lake, and LA. I mean, because even DC doesn't even have it. You know, DC is huge. And I don't think, and I've been in Mesa, which is one of one of those older ones. And I don't think Mesa has that situation either. It would be interesting to know about Cardston. Hey, Canadian Saints, Cardston. I've done a session in Cardston. Hmm. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I actually, it's funny you bring this up. We were traveling around. We decided Cardston's uh, such a cool temple. If you haven't been there, anybody, if you're ever randomly in northern Montana or want to venture into southern Alberta, it's well worth the pit stop. It's such a cool building, and. We did a session and then they asked us if we could help out as like witnesses for some ceilings immediately thereafter. Mm-hmm. And I seem to remember we did not stray far from the celestial room to do the ceilings, but I can't remember if we just like straight up entered a room from the celestial room. I don't recall. What I do recall though is that it, Karsten does progressive rooms even with the video. Mm-hmm. But we were in a session that uh, I think had somebody in a wheelchair or something along those lines. And so then they don't have you move. So they threw us in the terrestrial room, like the prevail room. Right. And that's a room that normally doesn't have screens except for cases like this. And all of a sudden uh, in this beautiful like wooden banister that's in front of where you progress later on rises up like a 60 inch television flat screen. Huh. That's just cool. in the middle of it. And then, we, and then we just sat there for the whole session. It was pretty interesting. Cool temple. So that was in Cardston, huh? Cardston is a really, really cool temple. I think the only bummer I had is that because of doing that, we didn't get to go through all of the rooms. So afterwards, yeah. we kind of snuck around and tried to peek into the rooms and were worried we'd get caught. And it's a very weird sensation when you think you feel like you're sneaking around a temple for fear of being like reprimanded for something. I don't know. It's You're in a temple. but Right. The temple warden will catch you, right? Oh, I know. Yeah. There we go. Well, what's our third temple story? We've the third one it. is about the uh, Baton Rouge, Bat- Baton Rouge. Uh, Red Stick. Yes, the Red Stick Temple in Louisiana. Uh, it has reopened to the public, or at least for an open house. Um, it was one of those mini temples, one of the early mini temples, I believe. Yeah. Right? And uh, and it, 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 it suffered some the terrible weather damage. So they, the church kind of had to... Build it back up from its bones, and um, it was interesting to look at the the actual announcement on the newsroom. I, the thing that caught my attention, I mean, beyond the fact that we're, we're reopening the temple, the only temple in Louisiana for the saints there, and also I'm assuming it it, it's, it serves some saints in eastern Texas and in the area, um, and Mississippi, and Mississippi. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, it says, "Hang on, let me find it." The new design of the wooden steel-framed building features an exterior of beige-colored limestone and new art glass windows. And it was like, art glass windows? And it uses that same term again later on down uh, uh, at the end of the article. And is that just 
is that like the LDS term for stained glass windows? Do we do do we not say stained glass window because that sounds too cathedral esque? I don't know. Well, I'm doing a quick art? I'm doing a quick Google search of art glass windows, and there are many many results. I am just not seeing if, uh, like you said, if that's actually different or if we're just using a different word for it. Oh yeah, the other part. Then there's a sentence, the next paragraph down. It says the art glass was created with shell and magnolia flower moti- motifs. Oh. Uh, which sounds well lovely, but I keep thinking, why are we calling it art glass instead of stained glass? I've always heard stained glass window, even know. if it's that's, that's representational. Just, that's, that's just too Catholic of us. You know, you can't call it that. Come on. That's what I was wondering. Anyway. Speaking of, back to the DC temple real quick. People might not realize those are there. I love the little sliver stained glass windows that are uh, in the stairwells. Oh. They're beautiful. And that's one thing that's very, like the design is very much out of the seventies that I do not want them to change. I, don't I think, think it's fantastic. I think it's a wonderful, beautifully abstract uh, piece of work. It there. really is. Cause if you look at the building from the outside, you can't even tell those are there, but they are, if you get, they are, if you get up close, you kind of realize what's happening, but other yeah, yeah. they're hidden pretty well. And I think there's even parts where the, uh, the stone cladding is almost translucent too, where they what? deliberately thin it out. Well, you can definitely tell at night because they 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 really they put some powerful lights inside that that window well on the interior. So when you, at nighttime, if you're up close, you can see them th- those cool colors and patterns shining out, and it, it's a great effect. I love it. Yeah. All right, um, I'm going to keep with temple themes, and instead I'm going to talk I'm going to talk about garments real quick. There's no story here this week, but I just want to give you my review of some garments. So recently, I needed to replenish. Uh, some of my supply of garments, uh, as as many men can probably attest, you let them go for far too long and far too bad a state of disrepair, and you don't care. They start to turn kind of gray. They turn gray, holes develop, all sorts of things happen. And eventually the wife convinces you to just order some new ones, which I could have a whole podcast on how garments are freakishly expensive compared to regular underwear. And I don't know what... Um, I don't know what mechanisms are in place for Latter-day Saints who straight up can't afford how much garments actually cost. Because if you're going to get like 10 days worth of garments, it's going to cost you $100 or something. But anyway, mm-hmm. so the new so men's stretch cotton came out recently. Now, women have had this for a while. And this was, this was all the rage when the ladies got it. The, the material, the way it's got these side panels that are ventilated, basically. Very intriguing stuff. So since it had come out for men, I, I decided I was going to pick up a couple different types see how I liked it. And I don't honestly know quite how I feel about it. Um, There are pros and cons as there are in all things. Big pro, the crew neck top is a huge win because the telltale sign, you know how it is, Jared, you've been to Provo. You see, you see guys, you you see guys wearing t-shirts and then a big white crew neck underneath it that, you know, are garments. And that is a look, if not uniquely Mormon, particularly Mormon, Right. I mean, I think most individuals, uh, men who feel a need to wear an undershirt, don't go out of their way to wear an under t-shirt underneath their t-shirt for typical fashion. So the new one, they actually opened up the the uh, collar a little bit and they say it is to essentially make the garment as invisible as possible from the outside, which I think is great. And it works pretty well. I had to kind of adjust a little bit just to kind of, you know, Move, just move around and let everything settle in order not to get the collar. Um, the downside is if you were to wear like a collared shirt with, you know, everything but the very top button buttoned, then it gives you a weird effect where it, the shirt doesn't quite go up to your actual neck. 
but you can still see the garment just sort of peeking out the top, in which case you want the old school scoop neck, right? So those are interesting, but they fit pretty well. Should, should I continue, Jared? Do you want to hear about all my thoughts on this? or do you Well, have- <laughs> I'll pitch in. So I actually, I haven't ordered any of the stretch cotton tops. Uh, it just, I was just one of those situations where I needed bottoms, but not tops <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> Things wear out at different rates. And mm-hmm. get, anyway, so I, I do uh, own several. Actually, I think all of my bottoms now are the stretch cotton. And I, I approve. I give two thumbs up from Jared's. They top feel drawer, top drawer of his bureau. Two thumbs up uh, uh, for stretch cotton. I, I like the feel. I like. I think they do. I think those panels that you mentioned actually do work fairly well for breathability, um, and I think they're quite comfortable. So yeah, and, th- and that's what I'm curious about. Now I bought the same size that I buy in other like dry lux or whatever else, right? And I know that these ones are officially more of a brief than a mm-hmm. boxer, as the church calls it, but I do find them to be a little snug. I don't know if you feel the same way, but they feel they are much, a little snug. But I, I kind of like it. I like the change. I welcome it. As I, as I mentioned, I'm 40 now, and I don't know. I guess as a 40 year old, I, I approve <laughs> of a snugger fit <laughs> of my underwear. Yeah. Well, was that was that, was that too much information? No, no. I mean, out? if we can talk about, you know, we can get more descriptive if you want to. But no, I, I, I feel like I, I like the snugness in a way. But as one who has been more of the boxer side of things for years. I, it's like in Wayne's world when Garth says at first it's <laughs> constricting, but then it huh. becomes a part of you. Um, so, there, <laughs> uh, so there's that. I don't know. So, so I'm, I'm intrigued about any other men who might have, uh, purchased these and what they think. And my, I feel like the one thing that's is really weird though. So I mentioned the crew neck top is different. They don't have a scoop neck anymore, but they have one that goes down to a V neck to sort of satisfy that that need if you're trying to have fashion for fashion purposes or whatever, which works. But for some reason, the V-neck shirt in general, which has the panels and all those things just fits way tighter than the crew neck one does, even though it's all the same. And I don't know why. So I actually find the V-neck one to be just less comfortable. Like it rides up a lot more often um, than the old ones. So I, so there we go. I don't know what I'm going to keep buying in the realm of garments. You know, I'm always looking for the best, power play. I loved mesh when I was a missionary, but I think it was dry enough outside. Even when it was hot, it didn't bug me, but mesh just is terrible. In oh, DC. the nylon mesh. I do not. I actually have one pair of nylon mesh garment and that's the one, you know, that like, oh, I know I need to do the laundry because yeah. all I have left are the, the nylon mesh and I do not like wearing them. Well, and that's where I might convert to. I like to wear the nylon mesh ones if I wear a t-shirt because I don't, I didn't find that the old dry luxe scoop necks would sufficiently be hidden and I, I don't, I've already spoken my piece about the old crew necks. So maybe I'll switch over because man, DC in the summer, if you've got Nile, the mesh on, it just sticks to you. And I'm, I'm curious, I, d- I do need to try out the, uh, the stretch cotton V neck because I, I, I like the idea of it not, of not, you know, wearing a regular t-shirt and not having that visible but i also i have a few t-shirts that are that have a bit of a v-neck on them so i'm wondering if Mm. the v-neck of my t-shirt will be deeper than the v-neck of the garment therefore making it useless like i just don't know i just don't know these are the hard questions people the other thing you can bear in mind is i believe is is it not permitted to make your own garments it is right if you get the kit or follow the template i don't i think that's old man i I don't think they do the kit anymore it's not allowed anymore because i have people in my family who make their own they straight up buy costco t-shirts 
and then just make no, the garments. I don't think, I think that used to be a thing. I don't think that's a thing anymore. Okay. Well, those people are going to suffer. Then. Oh, that's one thing I do want to yeah. say though, in favor uh, again of the, uh, cotton stretch and i don't know if they're doing that with all garments now but have you noticed that the marks are silk screened on now instead that, of uh, yes. embroidered? they announced that change some years ago the one funny thing about it is they talked about how long the, it was rated for washes uh-huh. and we realized if they wear off then it's like no longer a garment if it right? wears off it's no longer a garment then you got to buy them so i think the actual life cycle is shorter than a typical embroidered or stitched uh, which is piece. fine probably you know like you said we probably wait too long to to uh to replace our garments anyway. Yeah. So, well, I mean, the main point of all of this, though, is I think they're trying to make garments a little less conspicuous, which is good. I mean, I think that's yeah, great, especially for men. If you're wearing like white dress shirts, uh, it can be very obvious, you know, yeah. depending on the material of your shirt. And so, I think that's good. Yeah. Well, the symbols good. are there for you, right? They're a reminder exactly. for you. They're not for everybody else to see. Precisely. You're a brilliant. Speaking man. of speaking of the garment being for you, yes. This isn't really a new article, but it was sort of a, a still a relevant one. To, it, it, our familiars, may, our, our familiars, <laughs> because now we're witches. Our <laughs> our listeners may or may not be familiar. That's where I was going with the uh, auspicious author Jana Reese. Uh, she um, re- has been kind of doing a series of articles on her blog, kind of reviewing going over trying to analyze the changes in the temple recommend questions. And she recently, fairly recently had a piece where she was uh, noting, talking about the the changes that have come to the question regarding garments. And, it, and it's interesting because I, I haven't really delved into, I actually need to go get a new temple recommend interview pretty soon here, but I haven't really taken a hard look at the changes aside from reviewing president Nelson's talk and uh, she points out that they removed the wording night and day, right? Exactly. And so, so what does that mean? Well, and she points out in an article that the, the endowment doesn't use that term. The night and day language apparently was added in 1976. Now, um, as a quick caveat, though, what about you don't receive your garment in the endowment, though? Well, don't you? No, you receive... I mean, it depends on how you define the endowment, but I mean, you receive your garment during initiatories. That's part of the endowment. Okay. So we we break them up for the purpose of assignments in the temple, but the initiatory, as I have understood it, the initiatory is part of your endowment. Okay. Which is fine. I just wonder if Jana is actually thinking the same way or if she's solely referring to the endowment, the traditional endowment ceremony. I think she's right. I don't think there's ever been a night and day. She points out that it's, we're instructed to wear it throughout our life. And that's the thing. And so that's where she's thinks she's that the guideline is getting down to that, you know, it says basically as you were instructed and the instruction is throughout your life. And that's a much more like night and day is very specific. Like it kind of, it definitely tells you always. Right. And then she says in her article, she gives an example. uh, I can't remember. It's like, Oh yeah, Chipotle has franchises throughout the country, but they're not in every town. So is it, it's good to exercise throughout our lives, but that doesn't mean we exercise 24-7. Our garments now in that category. So if we're supposed to wear them throughout our life, does that mean it doesn't necessarily mean all the time, every single day? And I think, I mean, it's an interesting question and I, and I appreciate her bringing up the question, but I don't, to me, this doesn't represent a change. You know, I mean, we've had fairly specific instruction about not removing our garment for activities that could otherwise be done wearing them without any, you know, the fabled three trouble. S's. You mean whatever? Uh, 
Do I, are we going to go into the three S's? Yeah, one of them is sex. And one of them is swimming. One of them is... Showering? Sport, showering, sport. See, sports is the one that's sort of gotten, t- has been taken I, off. I the thought list. it was showering. Because, Maybe it's showering. Because I've I, heard arguments that, well, you can play sports in your garments. I don't know. I To me, it's always been, hey, the Lord trusts you. You don't have to be commanded in all things, as the Doctrine and Covenant says. So you figure it out. And I don't think that's changed. I just think that the wording is changing to sort of acknowledge that principle that, you know, you're an adult. The Lord has entrusted you with his, with his endowment. Therefore, you're mature enough to make a decision of this is an activity where I can take my garments off. This is an activity where there's no problem. I can leave them on. So, I mean, I, I don't get, know. What, what, what was your take on that? I don't think the standard has changed much. I mean, I think the standard is, you know, wear your garments. Like, unless you don't need to wear your garments for some reason. And like you said, they'll be thoughtful about that. I don't think we have to have that dictated to us. But outside of situations where you would not need to or it would be unwise to wear them, I think you're just supposed to be wearing them, right? Like no one's, I don't think the brethren are ever going to condone just not wearing your garments for funsies, more right. or less, you know? But then the other side of that coin is, you know, that people say like, well, you know, if you took them off to go to the pool or, you know, to exercise or whatever, like immediately when you're doing with that activity, you should make sure you put them on right, right, right away. And I and I hear people get really, like they wring their hands about this idea of, yeah. did you put them on as soon as you possibly could? And again, and I wonder if like, I, I understand the principle there, like that the desire to be obedient, the desire to be wearing this, this, this garment that's supposed to be a reminder to us, that's supposed to be a protection for, you know, spiritual protection, et cetera. But, um, I mean, are we also splitting hairs? Is this straining at gnats when we, like, you know, make such strict rules? I don't know. No, I'm, I, for the sake of being redundant, I mean, I agree with you there. That's just, but just be reasonable, people. That's okay. Yeah. Just be reasonable. It's fine. Like, yeah. I've been to the gym before without garments and then gone and had lunch afterwards. Hey, I think the uh, same rule that was in the old missionary guide applies here. Jeff, don't confess past transgressions on this podcast. (laughs) Next up, I will talk trash on previous companions. (laughs) Afterwards, Jeff and I will model a companionship inventory. Oh my gosh. My favorite companionship inventories were probably the one with my favorite companion on my whole mission. And all we would say is like, you good? And be like, yeah, Yeah. I'm good. Cool. Yeah. See, yeah, that was those were my favorite ones too. That was what we would do if we had one. It was generally, hey, are we good? Yeah, we're good. But All we right. had that kind of relationship where it worked, and there weren't like major issues. Whereas I had another companion who was like, I think we should sit down and really like talk about what we're feeling. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is not what I signed up for. What do you t- I don't want to talk through things. We did have a bad companionship, so I think his intentions were good, trying to like sort it out, but. Uh- <laughs> Oh my goodness. I was always like, oh my, why is every single Monday morning like Dr. Phil? What are we doing? It was fun. I had a good time there. Good. Thank you very much. Well, in our waning moments here, there's a couple, we still got some good stuff to get into. Real quick, the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square has announced its lineup for its Christmas concert, the 20th annual Christmas concert with the guest artist. And also a new uh, process for requesting complimentary tickets. Uh, the concerts will be the 12th through the 14th of December at 8 p.m. at the Conference Center in uh, in Temple Square in Salt Lake City. And uh, they're going to be joined by Kelly O'Hara, who is a tour de force performer who's performed in, you know, many 
places with many things, and she's capable, and everyone's going to love her. Great. I'm perhaps most excited that Richard Thomas uh, is going to be the narrator. Uh, Richard Thomas is known for The Waltons, for which he won an Emmy Award. He was also on Stephen King's miniseries It, and also something I didn't think anything related to the church would ever write about, the fact that he played FBI Special Agent Frank Gadd on the Fox series The Americans. And if you've ever seen The Americans, it's one of the best shows ever made. It is not a show that I think the church would like c- encourage you to take your time to watch. Right? I mean, this <laughs> that was my favorite part of this whole announcement, that they were like, you know, John Boy from the Waltons. Also, he was in It and yeah. the Americans. And the Americans. And I'm, I'm like, like, I'm like the Americans? You mean when he dies because he jumps out of a window? Spoiler alert, everybody. Sorry, season five. But um, the best the, – the what I love about this is his character, Frank Gadd, he was the uh, – he was the – chief of their division or whatever at the FBI and, and they're the investigating. Counterintelligence. They're invest- yeah. yeah, they're investigating, you know, Russian assets and stuff. And true to the 80s setting, the FBI had a male robot that, and have you seen like the show, Jared? Have you, you, oh yeah, okay. I, I, we, I've watched it beginning to end. Okay, so the male robot was a real thing the government had where it was a robot that knew how to follow lines on the ground and it would stop. Yeah, so male is M-A-I-L in this case, yes. not a male. Sorry, it's not an android. You. It's a M-A, It's a male thank delivery you. robot. Yeah, It would deliver the mail. And there's a part, this, fam- this is one of these things that became a meme amongst f- fans of the show where Agent Gag gets so frustrated, he just s- starts kicking and beating the male robot mercilessly. <laughs> and... That's what I love about Richard Thomas. I want them to bring a male robot on the stage during the Christmas concert and let him beat it senselessly. And on a show that had a lot of senseless beatings, that was the best one. (laughs) Uh, This is true. Anyway, if you want to go to the concert, uh, the registration period has already begun. Um, It runs from Friday, October 25th through (laughs) noon on Sunday, November 3rd. So none of this information is any good to you (laughs) because it's already a day later. But on Monday, November 11th, Results of the random selection will be communicated to all registrants. I believe you can still get tickets through other conventional means, but this time around, they let you register in advance for a lottery, basically. You can also watch it online or at your local stake center. Yeah. I've never been to one in person. I would love to go to one of these concerts. But I I've- did go to one in person, and uh, it was back when I was at BYU, and I can't remember the name of the guest artist, but he was this Welsh tenor, and he was fantastic. I think I know the one you're talking about. Slightly redheaded? Uh, probably. Aren't all Welsh tenors slightly redheaded? I mean, you get kind of a Mario Batali vibe from him. I think I know the one you're referring he to. He was a large person, but aren't all tenors kind of large people? No, <laughs> I'm a tenor. <laughs> I'm talking about like, you know, professional performer tenors, you know, when you look at like Jose Carrera and like, well, we can't talk about Placido Domingo anymore, I guess. But uh, why can't we talk about uh, Placido? What did I miss? Oh, you you haven't heard about all the Me Too movement? Oh, I forgot about E2 Placido. E2. Yeah. Yo Tambien. Me Too. Anyway. I'm looking for a Welsh performer. with Oh, Bryn Turfel. Yes, that's his name. Yes. There you go. He had this amazing, um, you know, he was wearing like a, I want to say like a tuxedo jacket, like a tenor would. But at one point he kind of opened it wide and you could see that the interior lining of the jacket was the Welsh flag. So he had this dragon going awesome. across behind his back. It was awesome. Yeah. That's not the first uh, Welsh individual either. They had Catherine Jenkins a few years ago. She even sang a song in Welsh during oh, yeah. the concert. So, and as a, well, I, I am a Welshman, so I, I'm very happy about this. Well, I mean, does don't don't we tell the tale that the whole reason we have a tabernacle choir is because of the Welsh immigrants baptized by Dan Jones that they came over and they had such a strong musical tradition that that's where our tabernacle choir came from. I choose to believe yes. So you I know, from Wales, 
the Welsh and their uh, singing, and that that has done great things for our church musical traditions. So. Yep. All right. Hooray, Welsh. Okay. Uh, we got two. Well, they're not really short stories, but I think we can cover them quickly. I think we can cover them quickly before the people lose interest. Let's do it. All right. So first of all, let's talk about uh, this uh, this article about. Well, it's funny in our little show notes. Uh, Jeff marked this as private LDS schools in Utah, when really these are not LDS schools. This article is about "quote unquote" LDS aligned. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Schools. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, but this is what's interesting to me. And and, and so, I mean, the article itself was fairly interesting. There's a a school called the American Heritage School. It's a big deal in Utah uh, that they've got a lot of students and they're planning to expand. And so, a lot of the article is just about this idea that, you know, American Heritage School is going to expand. But one of the key features that – this is from the Daily Herald, which – that's not a church-owned newspaper, right? They own we own Deseret News, but no, Daily we Herald. Daily Herald. We own, yeah, we okay. got KSL and Deseret News, but right. Okay, so Daily Herald still it's a Utah County-based newspaper. Yes, uh, they're reporting on this, and they keep referring to not just the American Heritage School as LDS aligned, but that there are several other either private or charter schools that are quote unquote LDS aligned. That to me was the most. Inf- interesting feature of the article as you pointed out or whoever posted it to the, the this article to the facebook page the, the sole comment uh in the post before the link was the church does not own, currently own or operate any private schools in the state of utah but this whole article k through 12 kind of had, k through 12 schools okay yeah, that's right k through 12 schools obviously byu lds business college um so, but this article kept on referring to like the sort of like perceived need for a non-public school, a school where LDS standards and beliefs and et cetera can be taught and embodied and, you know, imparted to the student body. But they, but the tone to me, the way I read it, it was as if they were saying like that the, in effect, it is a church school that it's, uh, it sounded, it, they didn't say church sanctioned, but that was when they were saying LDS aligned, that's the kind of the message that I got. And I just thought that was an interesting way to present this as if, I mean, I could, you know, start a school or a book club or something and say, well, this is LDS aligned and kind of take it wherever I wanted to. And just by claiming you're LDS aligned, does that necessarily mean you represent the church's standards, Mm. values, and beliefs? You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. And it's funny because of course, as Latter-day Saints, I think we often feel some sort of sort of affinity bias, you know, for these sorts of things. And if you do see something that just says it's an LDS aligned school, you just assume this is good. This covers what I need. This will espouse my values. So I'm a, by, by, by education, I'm a historian. I I have, I have a master's in history. And so this is one example where I would think, so a, a place that has a name like American Heritage School, I'm assuming is presenting some sort of very uh what's the how how do you describe this uh you well the word you're looking for is maga <laughs> no that's not what i was looking for uh, just a, a very um noble presentation of the events of the american founding and the american history uh, it, it, it's sort it, of it would be summed up as the prayer at valley forge the class right right yes. and so then i think so if we present, you know, basically, well, th- and this, uh, a friend in the comments said something about, you know, pr- presenting George Washington as basically being a Mormon kind of a thing. So, like, if that, if that's how a history class is taught, um, 
it, and, and you claim to be an LDS aligned school, is that sort of like presupposing, well, this is how the church views George Washington, that he was basically this extremely virtuous person who had no flaws, who single-handedly not only threw a silver dollar across the Potomac, but founded the country by himself. You know, like, you know what I mean? And so I, I get I get a little hesitant to when I see these organizations say, well, we're LDS aligned. And I think, can you really claim that in good conscience and, and say that everything that we're doing somehow would, if it could, have the church's sanction on it? You know what I mean? I get No, I get what you're saying. And then it gets even more complicated when you talk about somewhere like, say, Southern Virginia University. Well, the right. most probably the most famous LDS aligned uh, college. Um, like even this summer, our uh, our youth had their youth conference out there mm-hmm. at SVU, which is fine. They could go to any venue. I mean, it's not like any different on paper than if they'd go to you know a campsite or a, you know, a campground somewhere in the woods or what have you. Instead, they're just going to a random municipal-like facility. But I think the fact that it's Southern Virginia University, it's not like they're, uh, in our case, you know, going and like renting out James Madison University or George Mason University or any other random facility that could support them. They're going all the way down there to Buena Vista and sort of lending credence to the idea that this is a uh, only not a real church school on paper only. Um and that line, I think, is is blurred. I, I I have to wonder how the brethren feel about these sorts of things. If they, especially in the you know the post correlation era of the church, when you have whether it's SVU or in the case of the article, you know K through twelve charter schools in Utah that are preaching LDS values, is it a good thing or do they stand to incorrectly interpret the message of the church and and kids going to school, you know, all the way through K through twelve, perhaps even might be indoctrinated with, as you suggested, material that is not actually approved by Salt Lake. Or, I mean, and in, in, in even regardless of whether even, like, even if we're not approaching the idea of approval, but just representational. And and, and, that, and in that, I think that also my concern for that would bleed into, like, how are you teaching the sciences? Uh, do you have a lot yeah. of, like, climate change deniers in your science department yeah. that are somehow yeah. presenting this as... Or even like, you know, like, like, let's make it not such a current hot topic, but like, how is this school teaching evolution or astrophysics or, you know, anything that might, you know, rub up against some of our church teachings in, in a way that some people find makes them uncomfortable or just that they have too many questions to feel comfortable uh, believing in, a, you know, certain scientific principles. Is that being reflected in what's being taught at the school or social issues, political issues that, I mean, again, with a name like American heritage school, I have to believe that there are going to be some sort of social or political leanings uh, within the school. So are there social science teachers presenting a certain historical view of immigration? That's, you know, that has a slant to it that again, right. may or may not represent what uh, the church teaches or what the majority of its members actually believe. I don't know. I, I just kind of, I would, to clarify earlier, when you mentioned SVU, um, I made a little uh sound, and I wasn't making the uh about SVU. I th- believe it's a fine institution. I made the uh sound because you once again used that term church aligned and I or LDS aligned, and I, I that term, I, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Well, don't worry, Jared. Once President Elizabeth Warren takes office, she's going to put a stop to all this crap. All right. Okay, I thought I was getting a little too political in my commentary there, all but right. you just crossed the line, It's going to be over, man. Forget all this. All this, all this is over. All right, it will be public schools. They won't even have cute names. It'll be like in New York City. It'll just be called Public School 4. 
that'll be it. That'll be the end of everything. Man, you and your socialist paradise. Yeah. Oh, you know me, me and Bernie just hanging out, living the dream. <laughs> so uh, lastly, building on this, on, on LDS-related schools or whatever, let's talk about actual church-owned and operated schools. And the Daily Herald published an article uh, almost two weeks ago now, but uh, this one's been fun to visit. The headline reads that BYU considered building campuses in Anaheim, California, Phoenix, Arizona, and Portland, Oregon to manage growth. The article is pretty long. It goes into it goes back to the fifties of BYU commissioning studies about where church populations were going to grow, where they where how they needed to cap admissions to BYU, and essentially build what were junior colleges elsewhere as satellite campuses, sort of in the same vein as Rick's. Okay, which became BYU Idaho later on in the two thousands. Um, and and the studies are funny. They underestimated how many uh, Latter Day Saints there would be total by the year, what was it, by 2000, I want to say. But they also, the study is very interesting because it grossly overestimated the number of Latter-day Saints in my native California. Uh, Those issuing the study believed that Los Angeles would have more uh, Latter-day Saints than Salt Lake City at some point, and that Mormons were going to migrate to, to California. In the 50s, I completely understand why one would assume this, right? I mean, California was in its heyday. You're in the post-war economic boom. California still has a lot of people, but of course, we, we don't want to get into politics again, but obviously it's a bit different right now. I'm sure you could talk to plenty of people in Utah and say and suggest that they'd all move to California and they'd roll their eyes about Gavin Newsom's socialist paradise and how they would never go there. So, um, that was off. And that's why, of course, they did not wind up actually building a BYU satellite campus in Anaheim. And I don't know where the Anaheim property is. We tried to look it up. I uh, couldn't find any additional information as to where that would be. Uh, one of our Facebook commenters suggested that the site reserved in Portland, Oregon is what became the temple there. I'm not 100% sure if that's correct, but if it is, interesting. A um, couple sites. All these, of course, were out west. Notice n- nowhere in the study did it suggest Maybe we should build a BYU in like the DC area or Independence Missouri or yeah or somewhere like that. And DC is unique. It's you know long had the most Latter-day Saints of anywhere east of the Rocky Mountains in in one metropolitan area. Nope. It it the lo- the cutoff line visually on a map is very clearly the Rocky Mountains. There is nothing past the Continental Divide as illustrated by the map. But I think it's pretty interesting. You know, a number of acres, you know, varying from 80 acres in Laverne. Laverne, California is close to uh, Claremont. If you ever, ever heard of the Claremont Colleges? Uh, Mexico City only had 30 acres. I have to imagine that became one of our other schools that we had in Mexico at some point. But there was also Idaho Falls, Salt Lake City, San Fernando, California, Anaheim, California, Fremont, California, which is in the Bay Area, Portland, and Phoenix. So it would have been interesting if they would have done this. I wonder what it would have been like if there would have been a BYU in Anaheim. I grew up right next to Anaheim. Like, would I have well, got, honestly, gone to Provo or would I have, I don't know. I've honestly wondered if something like this is in our future because, and, and, the, and the article goes a little bit into this, um, about, you know, the, talking about the need for expansion and to accommodate, to try to continue to accommodate the people who want to go to BYU. But in, in BYU, Idaho, as far as I understand it, their policy is that basically if you apply, you get in um, more or less. And and to accommodate this, they they've, you know, done a they, they do a lot of online classes they have like you know the pathways program stuff like that that's all run through byu idaho uh but also they have this rotating 
three semester, three trimester thing where you get assigned or you're going to go to these two this part of the year so that we can accommodate the other students in a different part of the year. Uh, but, but, you know, if they're going to keep on just uh, accepting all these applicants, like it, it seems to me they at some point we're going to have to physically expand and build more church schools. Um, that's just my speculation. See, but I, it would be interesting to see where then, like, would we go again for Southern California for, I mean, Arizona and Idaho are, you know, likely suspects just because of the concentration. But yeah, why not expand out East? Why not expand internationally? Uh, you know, I don't know. See, it's funny you say, and this, of course, I drummed up an old article on This Week in Mormons, probably I think it was like the first blog post type thing that we wrote, that Al wrote, arguing that we need to close all church schools, including BYU. Yes, I remember that. Yes. Yeah. And that was an interesting post, because I, but I don't think we're going to go that way. I mean, we've been closing other schools, especially internationally, for years. Oh, yeah. Like the, the academies, the high school level academies have all been shutting down. Those have all sure. been shutting down. And I don't know if the church is still in the business of trying to stand up full-blown higher learning institutions. I I see your argument for it, but I just don't know if we're into that anymore. And I love the argument for closing them all down, basically arguing like, yeah, Provo's nice and you have a great experience, but how much stronger would it be if like Latter-day Saints lifted where they stood and served in their, you know, their communities or their states or wherever they go to school. So beef up the institute program so that you still have that good exactly. support and you get your religious education, but you go to the, yeah, a local but at state. the same time, how are all those guys who serve missions in Peru going to meet the Peruvian that they want to marry? Right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I can't argue with that, Jeff. I I just can't argue with it. I mean, I had a great time at BYU. I, th- I think it was and it was wonderful to meet people from all over the place. However, that said, I think the I've enjoyed living in D.C. because even at BYU, I did not meet nearly as many kids. Most of them were from the West. There's the stray individual who came from somewhere else. But I think when you live back east, you find a lot of other kids who went to college somewhere other than BYU. And a lot of your social network involves people not even from the Western United States. And you just get a great perspective when your group of friends are Mormons from Michigan and Illinois and Alabama and Maine and wherever else that you, they, those people just don't go to BYU for some reason. So that's, I mean, that's a good point. I, let me make my, for right now, the best argument I can think of in for BYU is uh, like you said, like a lot of the the students and people I, I met and knew were like, actually, strangely enough, either from my hometown or just, you know, like that Western United States area. But where I encountered the greatest diversity, quote unquote, diversity at BYU was diversity of thought through the faculty. And I learned from my BYU experience that I could interact with adult, mature members of the church who, you know, were members in good standing, et cetera, et cetera who had very diverse ideas and opinions politically, socially, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of like opened my eyes and my mind to the, the thought that, oh, the, the, the brand of conservatism that I was raised with and that I was taught was a norm for how a member of the church thinks is not necessarily, that's not necessarily the way it is. And so I appreciated being exposed to some really, really great and um, intellectually astounding faculty members at BYU who taught me, hey, there are other ways to think about and view and understand the world, and yeah. that's okay, you know? Yeah. And so, I, I don't know. I, I, and it was unique. I think, I don't know if I could have understood that or learned that outside of BYU. I'm with you on that too. And I think I appreciated it because I had well, mostly like Latter-day Saint professors, but as a poli-sci major, I think worldview, it was kind of split pretty evenly. 
like in mm-hmm. terms of right left amongst the professors. So it was great. I, I feel like I got this balanced view. And you've, you know, I'm t- I had like a, I had a great Welsh professor who I adored. Uh, yeah, dudes from dude was from Wales. He was a pretty like liberal, interesting guy. At the same time, he had like eight kids, sending them all on missions. All this stuff, just fascinating people. Yeah, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. I mean, I couldn't have yeah. that experience staying in California. For sure. I did have one, I had one professor who was an LDS. He was Catholic. He was one of my Spanish professors and he was awesome. I loved him. Um, And I kind of wish there was a little more of that kind of diversity among the faculty, but I did appreciate all the, the, again, quote unquote diversity, at least of thought and viewpoint that I encountered among the LDS faculty there. So there we go. Incidentally, I found out where the location would have been in Anaheim. Um, Oh, not that you know Anaheim very well, but as I do- I, I know it well enough to get to Disneyland. Uh, yeah, it would be a few miles from Disneyland. It would be off Euclid and the 91 freeway, folks, which today, you've got a big like medical complex, a Toyota dealership, uh, a bad apartment complex, some mobile homes, but more importantly, there's a Del Taco. So it gets a pass. I feel like getting the Del Taco was an adequate- I think that was an ag- a fair trade-off for not having BYU. If you can ever have a chance to have a Del Taco, people take it seriously, okay? It's a blessing. Uh-huh. All right, you got to recognize that. It's a very serious blessing that you can <clears throat> enjoy in your life. And because I'm the host of this show, the prime host, I can say those things. I can also say that this show is about over, and we hope we'll, you'll join us on Patreon, for example, where you can donate just a dollar a month. That's all I'm asking. Just a buck a month to help me pay for things like server fees and website fees and all that stuff that we do just to make this show work, okay? That would be very big of you. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash This Week in Mormons. That's very easy. You just sign up and pledge a dollar. Okay, and we got a Zelda sound in the background right now. Sorry, I should have silenced that alarm. Thank you, Link. And uh, join us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. And of course, go to thisweekinmormons.com where you can stream this episode, leave a comment, as well as find our various items of news coverage, blogging, relative race reviews, all sorts of uh, great things along those lines. So I want to thank Jared for spending the time with me this evening. It's been a... It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Much appreciated, Jared. Everybody, thanks for taking the time to listen in. We appreciate your time. And please subscribe if you have not done so. So for Jared, I'm Jeff. This has been This Week in Mormons. Be excellent to each other. Thisweekinmormons.com It's over!